Well, our passage for this morning is found in Mark chapter 6, and we're going to start in verse 30. Uh, the story actually, while you guys are turning there, the story in this text uh, has a unique distinction amongst the Gospels. I'm not entirely sure if I knew this at some point and then forgot it, but this is actually the only miracle account, aside from the resurrection, contained in all four Gospels. So uh, what we find is that each of the Gospel authors had a certain kind of pool of things to draw from as they constructed their Gospels. And as they put them together, each of the four gospel writers saw this story as necessary to telling the story of Jesus. I think it's interesting, in the gospel of John, the account ends in chapter 21, verse 25, and John writes this. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all look at Jesus' life, and because of the great number of things, from the things Jesus said and taught to the things that Jesus did and the miracles he performed, they have so many things to draw from. And yet the text we're going to look at and the story here, they all thought, this is significant, this is important, I need this to adequately tell the story. And so having spent time over the past couple of weeks as I prepared this message in in not only Mark 6, but in Matthew 14, and in Luke 9, and in John 6, it's become clear to me that the fundamental truth communicated by these words is that Jesus satisfies. Specifically, looking at the uniqueness of the Gospel of Mark, we could say that Jesus satisfies uh, for our, well, we could say this morning that Jesus satisfies primarily based off of how we understand who he is. That our satisfaction as individuals, our satisfaction in Jesus, is dependent upon how we understand his identity. And in this passage, we're going to get a couple of different angles at the identity of Jesus. And so as we jump into our text this morning, I think it's helpful to remember where we've been thus far and where we're going. Uh, So just a quick reminder, uh, last week we looked at Herod's birthday party, this sort of flashback And it seems like kind of a detour to something taking place at a geographic distance from Jesus. And at this birthday party, we saw that it was not only sexually gross, but actually extremely violent and graphic in nature. And so we might say as we turn away from that story, reading the Gospels, as we turn away from a uh, sexually illicit and a violent, even murderous birthday party to our text, we might say something like, The Galilean aristocrats feasted sumptuously, surrounded by decadency and deviancy, in the ornate palace of a false king named Herod. But what we're going to see in this text is that Jesus, the true king, the Messiah, satisfied the poor and the humble with a simple meal in an open field on the shores of Galilee. And so having thought in terms of where we've gone, where we're going, Let's read the text. Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now, many saw them going and recognized them, 
And they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and into the villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he, speaking of Jesus, answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. And he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And when they took up Twelve full, or twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of fish. And those who, had, who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. As we spend our time this morning reflecting on this text, I think there's a few key points we can see about Jesus' identity. And Jesus' identity as the reason why Jesus is able to satisfy You see, first we see that Jesus satisfies because he is our compassionate shepherd, the one who feeds the flock. Second, we see that Jesus satisfies because he is the master of ceremonies for heaven's end times banquet. And third and finally, we'll see that Jesus satisfies because he himself is the heavenly manna which God provides to satiate or satisfy our spiritual hunger. So let's dive in and look at these identity markers of Jesus and how they show us how we are satisfied in him. Again, to go back to the text, Mark 6, we read, The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. They, were, they had been sent out by Jesus, turned from disciples into apostles, turned from students of a great master to ones sent out. And they come back with a report And he says, come away by yourselves to a desolate place for a while and rest. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. And when they went ashore, they saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and the villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. Now, did you notice at either of those readings the centrality of eating to this text? It can seem like just a a kind of passing detail. Something that we can, we can skip over and that, that is just, you know, extra as we go from the scene to what God is trying to tell us in this text. But I don't think so. I think the centrality of food and the centrality of eating to this text is one of the ways in which we know that God does not waste words. 
He's trying to tell us something with the repetition. The disciples first. People are coming and going. The disciples have no leisure even to eat. And then the crowd, they're hungry. It's growing late. The disciples know they're hungry, and so they should be sent away to find something to eat. But Jesus, looking at his disciples, who again have moved from disciples to apostles now, are told, no, you give them something to eat. It's easy to pass over this, but I think this is fundamental to the text because what we see here is that the shepherd's primary job is to feed the people. Notice this in verse 34. They go ashore, they see a great crowd. Jesus has compassion upon them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And then what does Jesus do next? He feeds them, but not first with food. It says he began to teach them many things. And so we might see that the compassion is because they are without a shepherd, and that the response that the compassion draws out of Jesus himself is teaching many things. It would seem to me then that the primary task of a shepherd is the feeding of the sheep. Jesus' actions are spurred by the thoughts that these people are like sheep without a shepherd. So the initial act of feeding then is the provision of, for the sheep by way of teaching. Jesus is taking on the role of the good and compassionate shepherd here. And we could see this more clearly when we understand the importance of shepherding imagery throughout all of Scripture. But let's take a, a note of a couple of things that take place in this text. First, the concept, sheep without a shepherd, notice it is found in Jesus and is not communicated out loud. This is something internal. This is a peek into Jesus' thought life. And so we see Jesus himself thinking this. Now, one of the things that that strikes me as interesting is because, like I said, this miracle is recorded not just in Mark, but also in Matthew, Luke, and John. Yet, Luke and John record no such thought. They skip over the idea that the crowd is like a sheep without a shepherd. Now, Matthew does record it, but historians believe that Matthew had access to Jesus' gospel when he writes his own. Or when they had access to Mark's gospel, sorry. Matthew had access to Mark's gospel when he writes his own. Which means that this idea originated in Mark's gospel. Which I think means this. Mark had access to a source that told him when Jesus looked at this crowd, he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. That source remembered this idea for some reason. So who would that source be? What would that source be? Well, commentators tell us that the source is Peter the lead disciple. So why would this idea of sheep without a shepherd stand out to Peter? Maybe this. In the Gospel of John, after Jesus' crucifixion, resurrection, and just before he ascends into heaven, John records this intimate moment captured between Peter and the risen Lord. This is it in John chapter 21, starting in verse 15. And when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you, you know that I love you. And he said to him, then feed my lambs. And he, speaking of Jesus, said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. 
Verse 17, he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said it to him a third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. This text is referred to as Peter's restoration. You see, it follows on Peter having denied Jesus three times on the night that he was beaten and betrayed and before he would be crucified. Peter denied him three times, and so Jesus, to restore him, has him vow three times his love for him. But notice what the love that Peter has for Jesus is supposed to do. It is supposed to draw Peter into the work of shepherding. And shepherding, which is classified in both the first and third telling as feeding the sheep. This is interesting to me because this grabs hold of a different imagery than normally Jesus interacts with Peter on the basis of. You see, if you remember all the way back to Mark chapter 1 when we taught through that, Peter was not called first and foremost to be a shepherd. Peter was called by Jesus first and foremost to be a fisherman. In Mark chapter 1, he called Peter and said, Peter, I call you to be a fisher of men as Peter stands in a boat casting a net into the sea to fish for fish. There's a sort of sidebar point which we could make here. Pastors and elders like Peter, who would become one of the first pastors and elders of the church, are shepherds of the church. Their primary task is feeding and teaching, which limits their availability for evangelism. You see, we've already prayed this morning for Ross and Dustin. One of the things that I love about them is not only the ministry that they do here, but it's that as elders and pastors of this church, they are in their places of work surrounded by non-Christians, which for many might seem like something that, that is a burden, that is hard. But when you think about it from the perspective of Drurai, we do not have the time because we are often engaged in Scripture. Why? Because we were called as shepherds to feed the sheep in order to feed you well. I have to dedicate significant time to this book, which means we need you to share the gospel, to be on the front lines of evangelism, because we have been taken out of the place where we have regular, intentional, scheduled time around people who do not believe. If that passage we prayed through a little bit ago reminds us of anything, it's that those who neglect the wisdom of God, who turn away from knowledge of God found in Jesus Christ, will face judgment. And so we, we need to be on the forefront of evangelism. This isn't just the pastor's role. So interestingly enough, going back to our text, we see this unique insight from Mark, Peter, Jesus' relationship, that Peter has moved from somebody who primarily is called to fish to somebody who is primarily called to feed. A second reason why this is interesting is this concept of shepherds without sheep is not new to Mark. Rather, the Old Testament draws on this language regularly, and we could go to a lot of different places. Psalm 23, it's all over the book of Isaiah. But as I was studying, this one stuck out to me, Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel 34, starting in verse 1. 
the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. Should not the shepherds feed the sheep? If you eat the fat and you clothe yourself in wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not sought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled over them. So they were scattered, because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered, and they wandered all over the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered all over the face of the earth, and none to search or seek them. Skipping down to verse 11, though, we get this. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself, will search for my sheep, and I will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep. And I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on the day of the clouds and of the thick darkness. And I will bring them out of the people and I will gather them from the countries and I will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel and by the ravines and in the inhabited places in the country. And I will feed them with good pasture on the mountains. The heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing grass, and on rich pastures they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will not destroy. I will feed them in justice." As a pastor who's been tasked with feeding the sheep, there are so many things in those two passages which strike me and which we could expound on for a while. But let me just point out a couple of things and then we'll jump back into Mark. First, contextually speaking, the shepherds of Israel are quite clearly the priestly class. They have been tasked with feeding, with mending, with caring for, with seeking, but they have not. They have neglected their duty. They have neglected their job. And so the people that... Ezekiel refers to are like the people Jesus sees. They are sheep without a shepherd. Second, since the shepherds have neglected their God-given task, this provokes God's anger towards the shepherds, yet similar to Jesus in our passage, his compassion for the sheep. God's sheep are not being cared for. They are not being strengthened in their faith. They are not being encouraged when they are weary. They are not being ministered to when they are hurting. And so God is angry with the shepherds. But his love and compassion and mercy and grace for the sheep are also provoked. Third thing to point out about Ezekiel 34, God himself takes up the task of shepherding his people and he will cause them to feast in the good grazing grasslands. Notice what it says God will do. Search and seek, rescue, bring out from among the peoples, feed in rich pastures, have them lie down, which means to give them rest, bind them up when they are injured and strengthen them when they are weak. If you have been with us throughout this series in Mark, then you know that what we have looked at in the passages leading up to this passage 
is that it is Jesus who is doing these things. Jesus feeds the sheep with teachings. Jesus actually lets them take a moment and he sees them. As Ezekiel says, I will feed them on the mountains of Israel and by the ravines. Notice that they traveled by boat to get there, meaning they traveled by water, by ravine, to arrive where they are. Notice as well, Ezekiel 34, 14, I will feed them in good pastures, and yet Mark in our passage comments that the grass is green. Seemingly a throwaway comment, but where do you feed sheep? Where are good pastures? The green grass. Just to take a little sidebar, the greenness of the grass is actually super interesting here. I had to cut a lot of this out because there's so much in terms of God shepherding and Jesus' work here that stands out to me. But I couldn't let this go without saying, so just think about the greenness of the grass for a minute. Not only is it a picture of good places to feed sheep, but there's actually an apologetic thing taking place here. You see... We actually now know from various scientific data about precipitation and rainfall and things like that, and in terms of tracking back the calendar and being able to see based off of where this passage falls, Passover was referenced a few texts before this one. And so we can actually identify where in the year this event would have taken place. Oddly enough, this feeding is one of the texts in which people who distrust the Gospels and who argue against the veracity, the trustworthiness of the Scriptures, they pick this passage. And they say, this is a classic example of exaggeration taking place. Come on, 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish? Classic example of exaggeration. There were way less people and probably way more food. But the greenness of the grass actually is evidence that it proves them wrong. See, uh, if I could give a book recommendation, this book, Can We Trust the Gospels? by Peter Williams. Uh, Dr. Williams is a scholar who studies the Gospels and is involved in the translation of them uh, into various languages at Tyndale House. And he points out that actually based off of climate data, the amount of precipitation that we can track by the calendar points out that there was a small window of time in which the hills near the ravines and seas in Israel would have actually been green. And that small window of time is right in the window in which this text would have taken place based off of the reference to Passover that occurs in the Gospel of John and in the Gospel of Luke, just a few texts prior to this. So Dr. Williams says this, Uh, The identical details of the grass in many of these passages point out that between the years of 26 AD and 36 AD and all the possible dates and ranges for Passover between the last days of March and April, if we were to look at this in the places and times in which it's recorded, we should indeed expect that after the five most significant months of precipitation, the grass would be green. In fact, that's the only time it's green. Note, however, that this is an undesigned coincidence. It doesn't have anything to do with the miracle story itself. No one, or sorry, one, might therefore be inclined to claim that the setting of the miracle is extremely realistic. That being said, 
The miracle, many have argued, arises from one person telling another, telling another, and so on, to the point of exaggeration. And get this. But the problem with treating the central part of the story, the miracle of the feeding, as a careless exaggeration, is that the undesigned coincidences of the text suggest careful transmission of peripheral details. If transmission of the major elements of the story has been careless, would we not expect the minor element, or would we expect, should, sorry, we should not expect the minor elements of the story to be well transmitted? Therefore, the idea that the miracle account arose through careless exaggeration involves an unrealistic process of selective corruption of information in the story and lacks the explanatory power for the current shape of the text. Let me summarize what Peter Williams is saying there. If you were exaggerating the story of the feeding of the 5,000, no one would care to record that the grass was green because the greenness of the grass has nothing to do with the feeding. It's just a peripheral detail that Mark records seemingly by accident. So if you're exaggerating, one of the first things to fall away, one of the first things to change would be all the minor details. But instead, the minor details stay true, which says if they're being that careful, even recording the state of the lawn on which these people ate, would they not also be careful with the major event taking place? Peter Williams concludes this, often the facts are so subtle and indirect that all but the most careful readers are likely to miss them. If you suppose that the gospel writers put such agreement to make the narratives appear authentic, then you would have to have and you would have to imagine that they are among the most brilliant of all ancient writers. And the idea that several gospel writers might have done this independently is even less plausible. Peter Williams, who has spent his life studying ancient texts, says, the idea that four guys could have somehow recorded these events as accurately as they did is far more likely than that four guys forged authentic-looking accounts of these stories. So, sorry for that sidebar. I just couldn't let it go because it's such a great apologetic idea that tells us we can trust the Gospels. And by virtue of the Gospels, we can trust the rest of Scripture. By the way, this is an uh, extra copy of this book. So if you're interested in learning more reasons why we can trust the Gospels, the first person after the service to come talk to me and ask for this can have it. Just one caveat. You have to talk to me after you finish it. So I'm going to get your email or phone number, and I'm going to pester you until we get together over coffee and talk about this. Okay. Back to the text. Let me draw a few of the threads which we were talking about previously together. The picture being painted in Mark chapter 6 is this. You have desperate people who see Jesus and the disciples headed away to a desolate place. And those people sprint on foot in order to get there. And then when Jesus teaches, none of them, it seems, decide we need to go to get food. They hang out until Jesus is done. That picture is a pit people desperate for the teachings of Jesus, desperate to hear the word of God. Those are hungry sheep in that picture. And so Jesus offers them teaching. When we get a head count of the total, we get 5,000. 
The actual number, by the way, if you notice in the text, is likely much larger because it says 5,000 men. This is not 5,000 men as in humanity. This is 5,000 as in we could read the head of the household, which means there's likely women and children there as well. So the number of those who ate is likely much larger. So now we consider Jesus in our text. His compassionate response to the lost and scattered sheep is first to teach them. And what does he teach them? Luke 9.11 tells us this. He welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured all those who had need of healing. The point is that Jesus was feeding the masses well before he broke bread. He multiplied the bread, but first he was multiplying his teaching to these people because he is the compassionate shepherd. They may, have been spirit, or they may have been physically hungry at the end, but the thing that draws them all there is they are first spiritually hungry. And they needed something to satisfy. And Jesus still uses the same means to satisfy us that he used to satisfy them. He still satisfies our spiritual hungers by feeding us with God's word, by reviving us with the Holy Spirit, by encouraging us when we gather together. Neglecting any of these elements, whether it's one of the pastors or elders here or whether it's one of the sheep, the congregation here, neglecting any of these elements of how Christ feeds us is us simply being stubborn sheep, clenching our mouths closed when our good shepherd longs to feed us that which we need in our spiritual hunger. We could go on for a long time about the compassionate shepherd, but this passage isn't only about that. It is also about Jesus as heaven's master of ceremonies, which I probably need to explain for a little bit. Uh, the idea of master of ceremonies comes from the concept of throwing parties. Uh, so if you imagine throwing a party, or specifically you can think in terms of a wedding, you throw this large party, lots of people are invited. Maybe you're the person who the party is for, like you're the bride or the groom, something like that. Well, if the bride and groom are throwing the party, it's about them. People at the party don't want them to have to worry about everything going on at the party, right? You want it to be the bride and groom's special day. So what you do is you get a master of ceremonies. You get somebody who his job is to make sure everybody at the party has a good time. The plate is always full and they are well fed. The wine glass is always filled and they are drinking to their heart's content. They have everything they ever want and when they leave the party, they reflect back on what a good time they had. That's who the master of ceremonies is. He is in charge of making sure the party is reflected upon well. And so what we see here is Jesus actually fulfilling that role. Let's look back at the text, starting in verse 35. When it grew late, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy for themselves something to eat. But he answered them, No, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, he said, or they said, five and two fish. And he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, said a blessing, and broke the loaves and gave it to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. This might seem a small thing to us. I mean, quite frankly, if you've been paying attention to the Gospel of Mark, this miracle is actually kind of lame in looking at the rest of them. I mean, 
Just a few passages back, he cast an entire military unit of demons out of a guy. Uh, And in between that and where we are now, he raised somebody from the dead. In retrospect, this one's kind of like a cool party trick. We've seen multiplied healings. We've seen exorcisms. Where's the spectacle or the showmanship of this one? In fact, most scholars think that the vast majority of people that were fed did not realize it was a miracle. They didn't realize Jesus only started with five loaves and two fish. But remember, this miracle, apart from the resurrection, is the only one recorded in all four Gospels. So what did they see? What did Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John see in it that we might miss? Author and Christian public intellectual Timothy Keller puts it this way. To you and me in modern culture, what does bread mean? When we look at bread, do you know what it means to us? It means carbohydrates. That's the deep symbolic meaning of bread in our culture. But in ancient times, when there were not quite as many options for food, and when it, was, when it wasn't as certain that food would be there when you needed it, what did bread mean? Bread meant life. Bread was the symbol for the Israelites of life. You see, when Keller unpacks this and he looks at it, he he takes a peek, he peers into the historical context to understand how Jesus and why Jesus performs this specific miracle. Let's follow Keller's lead and do a little bit of historical analysis for ourselves. Historically speaking, this event takes place before any emergence of middle class or merchant class, which means what? In Jesus' day, there are rich, very small percentage, and everybody else is poor. Everybody else is living in humble, usually one-room houses and eating the food which they worked that day to earn the money to purchase. And so the cripple, the elderly, the infirm, or even just the occasionally ill, in that day, they depended upon the charity and kindness and compassion of their friends and their family in order to survive. The people he speaks to knew the pains of hunger. For them, this was no mere party trick because there are no local restaurants where waiters are bringing them bread as an appetizer on date night. For them, bread is not some sort of filler you get before Thanksgiving dinner or a meal with your whole family. Bread is life. These people knew what it felt like to go hungry for a day, for a night, for two, for three, maybe a week. In fact, while some accuse the Bible of being trapped in a patriarchal context, and thus at the end of this passage it only records the number of men, I'm far more inclined to, rather than view that as merely because guys ruled everything in that culture, I'm inclined to see that as this them counting the number of people in the audience whose dignity and honor every night depended on the fact that there was bread on the table. If there wasn't, your honor was impugned. If there wasn't, your family went hungry. If you didn't get work that day, you didn't feed them, and shame came upon you. Counting them just because they're men, maybe counting them because of their cultural obligation. These 5,000 people, those 5,000 men, 
We're saved from shame by Jesus. What does this tell us? It tells us that Jesus in this moment is not just addressing mere physical hunger, but he's actually addressing a daily need. He cares about how these people are viewed in their society, and he cares about the fact that they would be hungry that day. He's not feeding them for a month. He's feeding them right then. He's showing that this good shepherd has compassion for the stresses and anxieties of everyday life. And so Jesus offers them relief from their daily concerns with a simple meal. But let's go a bit deeper. Let's look again at the culture. Contextually speaking, this miracle would have taken place in a Jewish area in the ancient world. In other words, it took place around people who were raised on the stories of bread in the wilderness. Anybody catch where Jesus performs this miracle? Verse 31 makes a reference to a desolate place. Well, desolate is actually an adjective. When that same word in the Greek is used in the noun form, wilderness. This, for all of Mark's hearers, for everyone who experienced it, would have immediately sent off bells in their head of the book of Exodus of bread in the wilderness when they were hungry. Of their time of purification as they prepared to go into the promised land as conquerors. We can go deeper still, though. This story is not simply about what God had done and what God was doing in that particular time frame, in that particular story. This story is also about what God is about to do, what God will do. You see, this story is about Jesus as the host, the master of ceremonies for the heavenly banquet. You see, in the Old Testament, when they thought of how do we image the kingdom of God, how do we tell people what heaven is like, the image that most of the prophets and writers of the Old Testament brought to mind was a feast. Isaiah 25, 6 says it this way, On the mountain of the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of, of rich food full of marrow and aged wine well-refined. And again, Isaiah 55, verses 1 through 3, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Do not spend your money on that which is not bread, and your labor on that which will not satisfy. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. And delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast and sure love for David. Or similarly, the book of Revelation picks up the same theme, but it takes that story, that idea, that concept that Isaiah just laid out, and says that feast is called the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so commentators, when they look at Mark 6, 30 through 44, one of them said, for those who had the eyes to see it, this was a foretaste of the Messianic banquet, an introduction to the communal life with God in the kingdom of God. Now, I think I, I hear some of you already thinking this. Some of you thinking, 
well, that's super interesting, Tyler, but what, what's the relevance to me? I mean, I get it. Feast, heaven. But why is this important? Let me point this out. It's no accident that this text comes after Herod's birthday. Remember, we saw this flashback, and Drew pointed out last week that because it's a flashback, Mark could have put it in anywhere. But he chose to put it in here, right before this feast. Mark is trying to show us that the master of ceremonies of Herod's banquet, of Herod's birthday party, cannot satisfy you. He's trying to show you that the world has these parties and the world has these masters of ceremonies and they offer all these pleasures and all of these things, but those things will not fill you. And by the way, if you listen, the people who best exemplify the pleasures of the world will tell you that. I mean, in 1965, the philosopher Mick Jagger lamented the following. I can't get no satisfaction. And if you think it was just back then and, oh, no, 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 we've advanced, we've got iPhones now, Mick is probably happy. Well, John Mayer in 2003 crooned the following. I'm dizzy from the shopping mall. I searched for joy and I bought it all. Yet it doesn't help the hunger pains and a thirst that I'd have to drown first to ever satiate. If that's not enough, Mayer goes on in that same song to give you a checklist of everything the world might offer. And he says, no, 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 no. I had that. Here's how the chorus of that song goes. Friends, check. Money, check. Well slept, check. Opposite sex, check. Guitar, check. Microphone, check. Messages waiting on me when I come home, check. Yet... Mayor concludes at the end of the song, something's missing and I don't know how to fix it. Something's missing and I don't know what it is. No, I don't know what it is. But I know some of you aren't music fans and you don't like John Mayer, so let's try some sports. In 2007, Tom Brady was asked a question about retirement and satisfaction, what life was like after winning three Super Bowls, something only a handful of people have ever done in NFL history. This is what Tom Brady responded to the 60 Minutes interviewer. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey man, this is what it is. You've reached the goal, your dream, your life. Me, I think, God, it's, it's got to be more than this. I mean, isn't it? This can't be all that it's cracked up to be. Supermodel wife millions of dollars, the apex of the sport, of what he sees his calling, his life's work at. And yet for him, it's nothing. He followed that up by saying this. You ask me what the answer is. I wish I knew. And then in the interview, he says quietly under his breath, I wish I knew still searching. You see, the master of ceremonies of this world can give you all you ever want, and you will still feel empty. Drew and I reference this a lot because nobody outside of scripture itself has classified this feeling of despair and emptiness better than C.S. Lewis. In his sermon, The Weight of Glory, 
he compared us to half-hearted creatures fooling about like ignorant children because we lacked the imagination to understand the joy and pleasures of heaven, which Lewis says, if we could, if we could hold that picture in our mind just for a moment, it would stagger us. You see, Lewis wanted to dispel two myths simultaneously when he gave us that idea. Lewis understood that the truth about heaven is that it's not this place of stiffness and stuffiness, that that's crept in from other places, but the Bible has no room to understand heaven as a place of any lack of joy. Second, he knew that true joy, true satisfaction, lies not in our gluttony for pleasures, but rather in placing pleasure in its right place in understanding the perimeters and the parameters, the context for which our pleasures have been designed. You see, you and I were not designed for food or drink or sex or ambition or powers. Those are good things given to us by God, and he is the one we are designed for. And when we replace God with any of the pleasures of this world, they will not satisfy. You see, the master of ceremonies of this world will only be able to get what he wants when we have found out that we have not slaked our thirst and we have missed our opportunity. But the master of ceremonies of heaven, our good shepherd, Jesus Christ, wants to give us good things, and he wants to do that apart from the way in which Herod does it in his birthday party. And so Jesus gives us good things without bullying and without harming others, without abuse and without objectifying anyone. In heaven, no one has to lose in order for you to find joy. In heaven, no one has to go hungry in order for you to be satisfied. In heaven, no one has to be sexually objectified in order for you to be filled. And in heaven, no one has to lose their life in order for your thirst to be slaked. The question for us then is, are we willing to follow Christ and trust that he will satisfy? Are we willing to trust the bewildering line at the end of this passage in which he took five loaves and two fish and yet satisfied 5,000 plus because that is just a foretaste of the kingdom. And this leads us into our final image where we're going to close today. And this image actually comes from a question of doubt. Can Jesus really satisfy me? How? How is he going to satisfy me? To answer this question, I want to point back to a passage which I made reference to a little while back. In Exodus 16 and 17, God provides for his people in the wilderness, first with bread from heaven and then from water from a rock. And the miraculous provision of food and drink is actually a theme in the Old Testament. We could go lots of different places, but 2 Kings 4 is one of my place, favorite places to go. You see, in this story, first, the prophet Elijah miraculously provides multiplying oil for a widow who is in immense debt. And because she's in immense debt, what he does is the oil multiplies and she's able to sell it and pay off her debt. And then with the oil that's left over, sell it and live off of it. And then second, after that story, Elisha again is able to feed a hundred of the sons of the prophets with 20 loaves of barley and a few ears of corn. And 2 Kings 4.43 and 44 notes this. But his servant said, 
How can I set before a hundred men? So he repeated, give it to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. And so he set it before them and they ate and had some left according to the word of the Lord. This story too is echoed in Mark's telling. And when we see that Jesus feeds 50 times more than Elisha feeds with substantially approximately four times less food. And yet Mark 6.43 notes, and they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of fish. The clear implication is that there were more leftovers at the end of this meal than the food they had to begin. You cannot fit that many loaves and two fish into 12 baskets, yet they filled 12 baskets full. Jesus is going above and beyond here. And Mark lets us wonder at what this all means. But the Gospel of John is explicit. In John, after Jesus performs this miracle, here's what he tells them. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. And a little bit later he concludes saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father who gives the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives the word of life. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And he said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me I uh, will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is, not, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me but raise them up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. How will God satisfy? He satisfies by giving himself. No mere singular miracle, but a sign pointing to what John Mayer, what Mick Jagger, what Tom Brady, what all the rest, what you and I lack. We lack satisfaction, we lack contentment because we fail to seek it in the true bread from heaven, Jesus himself. And I know, I know what you're probably thinking. But Tyler, I am a Christian. I believe in Jesus and all the things you just said, yet I still feel discontented. I still feel unsatisfied with so much of my life. I still feel like that guy C.S. Lewis talks about playing around with drink and sex and ambition. Well, I think the answer lies back in that Exodus story. In Exodus 16:4, Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion, that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. Do you see the instruction? It's to gather enough, not to gather for excess. Why just enough? Because there's something deeper that God wants to teach them. He could provide excess. He rained bread from heaven every day. He provided water from a rock when they needed it. He provided meat by wind pushing quail. But what he wants to show the Israelites in Exodus and what he wants to show us 
is that the more important thing than our physical satisfaction is our relationship with him. If the Israelites were given all that they needed all at once, they would have soon turned from God, and they often did. And the same is true for us Christians. Think about it. How often do your prayer requests, or the prayer that you ask of your brothers and sisters, or that you quietly petition God for when you pray at night, related to the gifts that he has given you? What I mean is, are you stressed at work and so you pray for that? Well, was that job that now stresses you and feels like a burden? Was that not once something you prayed for and a source of provision? Maybe you're frustrated with your spouse or your children, but did you not at one time pray for marriage? Pray for kids. Pray for relief from loneliness. We're often distracted and anxious, not by the schemes of Satan, but by the good gifts that God has given us when we invest in them rather than in him. And God grants our requests, and things get easier, and then the gratitude fades, and the complaints soon arise. This is part of the paradox of Christianity, that we are provided for on a daily basis by a God who longs to give to us abundantly, but knows that our hearts are so easily pleased and so ill-prepared for the abundance of his kindness and the joys of heaven, that in wisdom, he uses discontentment in our lives as a tool of the Holy Spirit to push us further up and further in to dependence upon and relationship with him. We must return time and time again to the bread of life in order to be forgiven and filled and to be satisfied. Does not the hymnist rightly sing, we are prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. So instead, we need to look on the tiny morsels of bread and juice, which we will partake in a minute, as a foretaste of the kingdom. Because it does not satisfy us, because its job is to draw us further up and further in with God. God wants our appetite for the feast of heaven to be wet, and thus for us to receive him. We were made for him in the unimaginable abundance, and we can spend eternity with him as our true prize. So let me close finally as the scriptures close. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And he will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more, and neither shall there be mourning or crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. <laughs>